0: Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You care about where your food comes from, whether it's for you or your pets. That's why Purina makes every ingredient count and is committed to responsible sourcing of ingredients. Learn more at Purina.com cares.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi
0: there. How are you? Um... It's Lisa Bonas calling this
1: is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 28th. Today, the next phase of vaccine trials, the moms lining up to protest in Portland, and a seismic
3: shift. We're just in this heightened time when my life is somewhat miserable because like every day, <laughs> like I got up at 4 a.m. yesterday.
1: The science reporter Carolyn Johnson has been writing a lot lately about the development of a potential COVID vaccine.
3: Monday morning, very early The first person was given a vaccination as part of this huge 30,000 person trial to test whether a vaccine being developed by a biotech company called Moderna really works. And that's a huge, significant milestone for the company and just for like the U.S., kind of starting its first trial, but there is also just kind of like an avalanche of these trials waiting. And so by the end of that day, Pfizer had also started a 30,000 person trial. So we're beginning to see what scientists and researchers have been waiting for, but we also still have to wait. 30,000 people can't get a shot in all in one day, and, and then we have to wait and see who gets sick and who doesn't get sick.
1: And so can you explain a little bit more about how this 30,000-person trial works or or who is going to be able to get these shots as part of this trial and how long are they going to be tracking them for before they can come up with some kind of takeaway?
3: That is something that they are working really hard to do right now is get volunteers. You need people to raise their hands and say, I'm willing to take an experimental vaccine. There's a lot of enthusiasm out there. But research has to be done very carefully. So what happens is people can express interest. There's a national registry. People can sign up and say they're interested in the vaccine. They have to fill out a bunch of data about who they are, like how old they are, like race, like whether they're at high risk for the virus. Because what they want is to get a really diverse population in these trials, a population that is going to be like similar to who eventually they hope receives the vaccine. So they can't just do it in like young, healthy people. They don't want just like white college graduates. They want the people who are really at risk of this. And that means they are really working to try and build bridges to minority communities that have been disproportionately devastated by this Virus, also older people.
1: Is there an ethical concern about that, considering that older people are more vulnerable?
3: No, they actually want people at high risk to take it because those are the people you really need to protect. And so understanding whether it works for them is definitely important. They aren't taking everyone who volunteers you. If you have a disease that suppresses your immune system or if you're pregnant, they are not including those people in these studies at this moment.
1: And so is this one of those types of trials where it's basically like they give some people the actual vaccine and they give other people like a placebo and then they essentially see who gets sick and who doesn't?
3: Yep. You have a 50-50 chance of getting the experimental vaccine, 50-50 chance of getting a placebo. And then they wait to see whether you become infected and compare the infection rates between those people who got vaccinated with the experimental vaccine and those who did not.
1: So this is a kind of clinical trial where they're not going to actually expose people to COVID, right? Like they just give them the vaccine, they send them on their way, and they expect that some people will naturally be exposed to COVID just from being out in the community.
3: Yes. That's a big misconception about vaccine studies that people often think that they're going to be given the virus. That's not going to happen. So What will happen is that they will go back into the world and the virus will still be there. And unfortunately for the country, there is a lot of virus transmission happening right now. So that is giving vaccine developers confidence that they are going to be able to answer these questions relatively quickly.
1: And when do they actually expect to have results?
3: It really varies. Pfizer has said that they believe they might be able to have enough data to ask for some kind of regulatory authorization or approval by October, which is extremely soon. But that's, I wow. think, a best case scenario. And there are people who are more and less skeptical about whether that deadline can happen. Dr. Tony Fauci yesterday said for the Moderna vaccine, he believes sometime in November or December is a likely scenario, although he did, it, he did leave open the possibility it could be sometime sooner.
1: When we have talked about vaccine development in the past, You had said that one of the expectations, or at least one of the concerns, is that people's ability to access this vaccine whenever it gets developed will be dependent on which country is the country that comes up with this and which country you're living in. That if it's a Chinese vaccine, you can expect that Chinese citizens might be able to get it first. If it's an American vaccine, then Americans will have better access to it. So where are we at in terms of the global race for vaccines and are other countries way ahead of us?
3: It's really hard to know who's ahead until you see the data because you might be able to complete a trial quickly but not get a very definitive result. What does that mean? Are you ahead or behind? So the U.S. uh, has now started two large trials that are supposed to test the efficacy of the vaccines. There are two Chinese companies also in large trials. I guess they're a little ahead. And the Oxford and AstraZeneca effort is in phase three trials in other countries, but not yet in the U.S. They will be starting soon. So it's hard to know who's ahead at this point. But what is certainly happening is companies are just buying up the doses in advance, just like kind of making a pre-order for a vaccine. And so last week, the U.S. bought 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, if it's approved, for $1.9 billion, and they have done that with several other vaccine makers. So what you're seeing is people mm, kind of calling dibs on doses before they even know whether they work.
1: What are the big questions that you are asking yourself at this point?
3: Well, once these large trials begin to show some data That is what everyone is waiting for. Because, like, people pour over, like, a monkey study and try to extrapolate what that might mean. But, you know, someone told me mice lie and monkey exaggerate. So it's like (laughs) trying to understand how a vaccine is going to perform in the human population based on, like, these laboratory experiments is really not a good way to come to any definitive conclusions, although the studies are important. So... People want to see the real data from these large trials. The fact they're starting is a huge step forward and it gets us closer to seeing the answer about whether the vaccines work. So that is what everyone is waiting for.
1: Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post.
0: I'm in Portland where, for more than a week, I've been going down to the federal courthouse downtown here to watch protesters square off against federal officers who have been sent to protect the building. And every day, more and more people are coming out, including growing numbers of this group of women wearing yellow shirts and carrying sunflowers that has become known as the Wall of Moms.
1: Do
2: this every
0: night! My name is Marissa Lang, and I cover protests and activism for The Washington Post. So these waves of women in yellow start showing up in the early evening, right around sunset, and they're wearing bike helmets, some of them are carrying, you know, other forms of protection like gas masks or respirators or backpacks. And they, they all get together, and then they march up a few blocks to the federal courthouse. And when they get to the federal courthouse, I mean, the crowd loves them. They they start cheering. Anyone with a microphone or a megaphone starts, you know, announcing, here come the moms. Everybody make room. People in the crowd yell things like, thank you, moms. And then they usually file into the front of the protest and they link arms. So they create kind of like a human chain and create like a buffer.
1: So tell me about the wall of moms.
0: It started with just a small group of mothers in Portland who, after watching some of these protests play out and get increasingly violent, decided that they were going to come downtown. And put their bodies as like a human shield between demonstrators and these federal agents that were firing rubber bullets and pepper balls and tear gas and all of these things into the crowd. And I think several of the organizers maybe naively believed that if there was this human wall of moms, of women, of pregnant women and you know, grandmothers and whoever, uh, that it might diffuse some of the violence. And and when you say these are women from Portland, I mean, w- what type of women? It's a really mixed bag. I've talked to some moms who have been longtime activists who have been protesting for years and years. I've also talked to some moms who are sort of your stereotypical suburban minivan driving soccer mom. And they have never protested anything in their lives. Portland is also a very white city, which is important to note the black population in Portland is in the single digits percent wise. And so, yeah, this organization is is a very white organization, but they have increasingly made efforts to put black women and women of color at the front of their messaging and in charge of the group. So what do these women say
1: about why they are coming out to the protests every night?
0: It started with the videos of the federal agents grabbing people off of the streets and putting them into unmarked cars. And that really upset a lot of people in Portland and the Portland area who felt like there was no way that could be legal. So they wanted to come down and protect some of the demonstrators who they view as kids, as either literal young people or, you know, someone else's kids who needs protection.
1: So besides standing as a
0: barrier, what do the moms do when they're out there? They've started to take some protest chants and turn them into lullabies. So one of them that they did early on that got a lot of attention was they were singing the words, hands up, please don't shoot me. When you have these moms who, you know, like I said, are largely middle-aged, white women singing this like a lullaby, it just really struck people in a different way. And I think it also maybe emphasizes how absurd it is that they have to go out there and do that.
1: So to me, I I think one of the things that is so interesting about what these moms are doing is that they're basically performing like a very concrete example of, of what people describe as a form of allyship, right? That they understand that as a group of predominantly white women, that they are less likely to be targeted by police or hurt or brutalized by police. And so they stand there to protect other people who are more likely to be targeted. They're using their privileges as a form of good. I think some people would describe it. But it's also been interesting to see how people are talking about these moms and in some ways concerned that these women, these mostly white women, are getting a lot more attention than the people who have been protesting a lot longer, whose lives are in many ways much more affected by the thing that people are there to protest, which is racial injustice.
0: 100%. I think that that is exactly the dynamic. The mom's out here do recognize that and when you talk to them they will say that oh you know I'm a white woman and I have all this privilege and I can stand here and put myself on the line and then I can go home to my house and feel safe I think there is a real awareness that they have Almost the superpower as white women to be able to do this because the rest of their lives is, are pretty shielded. They're not going to necessarily lose their jobs if they get arrested or ruin their lives if they're picked up by police. But that has also been a tension because as you point out, there are other women and other mothers, women of color, black women here in Portland and around the country who have been doing this work for many years, for centuries. In fact, the mothers of the movement who have been doing this work for many years and are made up of moms who have lost sons and daughters to police violence, know that progress can be made with consistent, steady work. It has taken them years, but they have toured the country. They've spoken at the Democratic National Convention. They've had a real impact on policy change and getting folks into positions of leadership. And they don't go viral in the same way that these Wall of Moms have, but they have been on the ground making change for a long time. So then how is this Wall of Moms movement
1: responding to this criticism that they are taking undue attention away from the people who should actually be at the center of these protests?
0: Well, just a few days ago, they had a change in leadership. They've brought in women of color to lead the organization and kind of be the face of it. They want to try to back away from this image of white minivan driving moms as the people we should be focusing on. Teresa Rayford is one of the new co-directors of the Wall of Moms out here, and she has been a Black Lives Matter activist for many, many years. Um, She also lost her nephew to gun violence in Portland and has spent the last almost five years fighting for change in the Portland Police Department. Uh, the reason that the Black Lives Matter movement is so fortified in that city is because there is so much bigotry and discrimination against anyone who is not a white cis person. And so when Black Lives Matter, or when disability lives matter, or when lgbt lives matter, and then they become powerful because of their community engagement, um, there's a large resistance, not only from the bigots that live in our city and our state, but from the agencies that have provided them the sanctuary of, uh, you know, criminalizing poverty and segregating community.
1: And so what did she say about how she is finding herself in this new relationship with these protesters who are coming to this from a very different experience.
0: She says it's kind of a teaching experience that for some of these women who have been doing this for a long time, they see this as a marathon. They know that this is not something that you're just going to show up to and poof, everything is going to be better and different. And I think that's what a lot of the moms who participated early on believed. I had one mom tell me that she thought, you know, she was going to go out and get her butt kicked and get tear gassed and those images would hit the news And the next day, you know, the Trump administration would be having a press conference and apologizing. And clearly that's not what happened. And I feel like that
1: embodies so much of the tension here, which is both this this it seems like a a pretty earnest desire to be an ally, but also being really naive about it and naive about the impediments to actual structural change.
0: I think that the takeaway for a lot of the mothers who have gotten involved and also what they're trying to impress on others is that they are there as supporting characters that, yes, they're putting their bodies at the front, but that is to use that privilege that they have as a shield. But they don't want to center themselves and their experience or talk about how they're experiencing the police officers at these protests because they understand that that is just a blip when it comes to the greater conversation around racial inequity and policing and police violence. I think a lot of these moms, increasingly, when you talk to them about their experiences, will tell you, yes, being tear-gassed is not fun, but... I don't have to experience this larger world of inequality and injustice that Black women, other women of color have to deal with on on a regular basis. I haven't lost my children in a police shooting. They're centering sort of that understanding that this isn't about me and my experiences and also in a lot of cases with reporters who are trying to talk to them in these moments saying are you talking to black women are you talking to women of color and trying to direct people to other voices who are not theirs
1: marissa Ling is covering the portland protests for the post On Tuesday, Attorney General Bill Barr appeared before the House Judiciary Committee, where Democrats demanded answers about the federal response to the Portland protests.
2: Under your leadership, the department has endangered Americans and violated their constitutional rights by flooding federal law enforcement into the streets of American cities against the wishes of the state and local leaders of those cities to forcefully and unconstitutionally suppress dissent.
1: In response, Barr said it's necessary for federal officers to use these tactics.
2: We are on the defense. We're not out looking for for trouble. And if the state uh, and the city would provide the law enforcement services that other jurisdictions do, we would have no need to have additional uh, marshals in the courthouse.
1: And now one more thing from science reporter Joel Achenbach. There
2: there are thousands of seismometers around the world that are closely studying what's happening to the surface of the planet and keeping on the lookout for earthquakes and trying to measure them when, when they do happen. But when the shutdowns happened across the world back in March and April, seismologists noticed a dramatic change in the vibrations, the ground, the earth just became quieter. In the history of seismology, scientists have never seen anything quite like this. Human noise, human-generated vibrations has always been kind of a, a, a hindrance it's always been in the in the background of the important signal coming from nature these seismometers are very sensitive so they can pick up trucks and trains they can pick up all kinds of human activity industrial activity what's going on in a factory slamming on the brakes on a truck and so on that background noise extends farther than they thought into sort of remote areas far from cities a scientist at Yellowstone National Park told me that when they look at Old Faithful they see the signal of the water gurgling beneath the geyser for about 20 minutes before there's an eruption but Right when there's an eruption, they see a huge spike that's caused by people racing to the edge of the geyser to watch it, and then afterwards stomping down to the visitor center. So the human activity actually greatly overshadows the natural signals on the seismometer. From March to May, from around the planet, I think it was 76 different scientists In 27 countries, they shared their data and came up with this really remarkable report that was published in the journal Science showing how the whole planet became quiet as people just were not stomping around as much. In some places, it was up to 50% drop. They really noticed it in places like downtown Los Angeles and all these college campuses. What's interesting about this is that This tool potentially could be used for monitoring social distancing and the degree to which people are abiding by government orders to stay at home and shelter in place. And this tool is totally anonymous. It's not even like the cell phone data, which has some privacy concerns. This is just a a seismometer picking up the vibrations in the earth. Human beings are changing the planet. We've been talking about that for years with climate change. And it's another reminder just of this sort of Anthropocene moment that we're living in with, with the, the powerful impact of humans on the planet and how you can pick it up with scientific instruments. But what this study does is it looks at the human signal, the human noise, and say, hey, there's a story here, and it's really powerful, and it captures the pandemic, it captures the shutdowns. So in this case, the the noise is the signal.
1: Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have questions about the coronavirus, the Washington Post might have an answer. Since the start of the pandemic, the Post has been compiling all the reader and listener questions we've been getting about COVID into one big FAQ. We've cataloged and tried to answer over 11,000 questions so far, with research from experts and data to back it up. Check it out at WashingtonPost.com slash FAQ.